Welcome to the Inside OSU podcast. I'm Robin Hearn. In April of 1968, America was rocked by the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It was a divisive and tragic time for our country. In the middle of the chaos, two Oklahoma State students, one black, one white, both friends, traveled by car through the segregated South. Harold Fields and Keith McGlamry were in Atlanta when Dr. King was assassinated. On today's podcast, Harold and Keith sat down with OSU President Burns Hargis to describe their journey. It's an unfiltered look through a turning point in American history. Uh, let's go back to 1968. And, uh, of course, Martin Luther King was assassinated on April 4th uh, in Memphis. Uh, but you two were together in Atlanta at that right. time, were you not? That's right. What, 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 why were you in Atlanta? We were both in uh, Omicron Delta Kappa, right. ODK, and there was a national convention for ODK in Atlanta. And the OSU chapter of ODK didn't have enough money to, they wanted to send representatives to the conference but didn't have enough money to pay for airline tickets or whatever. So Harold and I drove from Stillwater to Atlanta to attend that convention. That was I, I see. And went together. Yes. Yeah, we drove together. Yeah. We had to plan a, an itinerary that was, was we thought would be safe uh, because, you know, just a few years before there were the Freedom Riders and, right. and just a lot of uh, violence throughout the South. So we were pretty concerned about, I couldn't stay in a lot of places. Yeah. Um, and so we drove straight through. Did you go through Memphis? No, we didn't. No. The interstate system wasn't complete at that time. Right. And so we... Uh, ended up taking a diagonal path down uh, from Arkansas into Mississippi and uh, Alabama. We drove all night. We left evening, I guess, the 2nd of April. And we drove all night. And the, the next morning, uh, we'd been hesitant because we weren't sure of the safety issues sure. of the black and white traveling together in the Deep South. And so we didn't, we were very careful about stops at night. And we saw a Holiday Inn in just outside of Gadsden, Alabama. We thought, well, it's a national chain, surely that's safe. We stopped for breakfast, it was about 7.30 in the morning. I had traveled in the south with my family where you're graded with all this southern hospitality, good morning, how are you, and all yeah, of this sure. friendship. But in contrast, when Harold and I walked in, we were met with silence. And the hostess sort of stared at us, we said, we. We're there for breakfast. Uh, she picked up two menus without saying a word, walked us across the dining room to the furthest removed from any other patrons, placed the menus in front of us and turned around and walked away. A short time later, a waitress came up and again, it was the mute treatment. She stood there silently holding an order pad and we assumed that that meant she was ready to take our orders and so we both ordered. I had noticed that the hostess had been on the phone after she went back to her hostess stand. And before our food arrived, two Alabama state troopers came in with some local man. And she led them, the hostess led them across the restaurant, sat at the table next to us. And as she placed menus in front of them, she said, did you all notice who you're having breakfast with this morning? And one of the state troopers, and this was obviously for our benefit, and there was a state trooper just to my right, and I couldn't help but notice the large pistol on his hip. And he said, 
yeah, as far as I'm concerned, we shouldn't have to give them food, shelter, or nothing. And the other one then said, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, their biggest problem is going to be getting out of this state alive. And so that was our introduction to the Old South, if you will. Well, uh, actually, the, I think uh, before we got there, driving through Mississippi, uh, well, on some of the local roads when you get off the four-lane highway and those stretches where you had to go through local towns, one of the things I noticed was that there were, there were stop signs on top of stop lights. Uh, it made me very nervous because I realized that that was there to catch anybody with popping out-of-state license plate. Uh, and if you went through the green light, you could be pulled over and, and, the, and the question would be, hey boy, why'd you run that stop sign? For local control and, and, and selective enforcement. You know, I was just really on pins and needles uh, sure. driving that whole time. You got to Atlanta, hopefully without right, further right. incident, and uh, so you could, would have gotten there on the 3rd? We got there in the evening, I guess, late on the 3rd, and mm -hmm. we, our, the conference started the next morning, the 4th. Mm -hmm. It was well attended. Ivan Allen, who was the mayor of Atlanta, addressed us. And that, toward the end of the day, and there were meeting discussion sessions, and Harold and I were in the same one, and there was a, a student walked in, ashen-faced. He was, I believe, from Memphis State. I'd met him earlier in the day. And he very somberly said, I've just been told that Dr. King has been shot in our city. And was that sort of late afternoon? This was, you know, this was, what, 5.30, somewhere? Something there. like that. Yeah. And, and it didn't immediately register our city, uh, you know, what right. were we talking about? And, and it became clear he was talking about uh, Memphis, and by that time, everyone knew that uh, King had been killed. We were, I think, shocked, stunned. It was a, you know, it was one of those situations where you're not sure how you're, how to even react because the news is just, and you're trying to process what it means for the King family, for yourself, for your, the country, and so forth. I mentioned earlier that uh, the OSU chapter of ODK didn't have a lot of funds, and so to conserve, Harold was very good at keeping records and, and watching the money, and so we stayed at, we were staying at a YMCA. And so we left the conference and went back to our small little room at the Y. There was no television. Harold had a portable radio, and we started listening on the radio to what was going on. Back then, I mean, this, that was the same time I was in school, although I confess I'm a year older than, than Harold anyway, <laughs> two, years, two years older than Keith. Even, I mean, segregation was alive and well in, in 68. I mean, your, your friendship would have been a little unusual mm -hmm. in, in the, at that day. How did, how did that happen, Harold? Well, I think uh, Keith and I met probably over at University Heights Baptist Church. Mm -hmm. uh, I was uh, attending uh, University Heights and uh, very involved and I was one of the student leaders there and and then and we collect is that a, a integrated church University Heights is yeah. it's across the street from uh, the old campus theater on Knobloch right and right. It, it was well I maybe I was the integration at that church is that right yeah, yeah um, there were only maybe just a few a handful yeah. Um, but I was singing in the choir and very active with the 
student groups. Right. But I, even though in, in Tulsa I went to a segregated school system, um, being a student council president, I was involved with the uh, student council presidents from all the other high schools. Yeah. So I had been collaborating with uh, colleagues, white colleagues, quite a bit. And um, so it was, I was pretty comfortable with in, interacting and uh, with with all kinds of people. Yeah. So it, it was, uh, Keith and I, we served on the Senate together. And uh, so we, we did a number of things together yeah. uh, o over time. When I went to school, or I came here to school, at that point I didn't know a single African American by name. Uh, there were no um, blacks in Collinsville, there were a few Cherokee Indian families, a few Hispanic families, but, but no blacks. And I didn't understand at the time, but Collinsville had been one of those sundown towns where the, the unspoken rule, and sometimes it was actually written in, on a billboard outside of town, like yeah, that. that basically told uh, blacks that they were not to be present in town uh, after sundown. Right. And so the result of that for Collinsville, which as I say was only 20 miles north, is that the, neither the town nor even the surrounding rural area uh, were there any black families. And so when I met Harold at the University Heights Baptist Church, it was the first black person I had known by name. We had interaction over time, but that during that trip is when we really got to know each other because of the circumstances sure. we found ourselves in. Sure, adversity has a way of bonding people. Yeah. Right. So uh, let's go back then to, to uh, April 4th, what, uh, 1968. After you heard the news, what happened? I mean, was, were there riots in the city? Was no, it there, Atlanta didn't have riots. Uh, it was very calm. We, we noted that. Uh, we noticed that as we drove around the next day. I think we went to some morning meetings and then and then spent time trying to see more of the city and trying did you to... Did by his church? We, we actually did go to the church and uh, we sat near the, near the back, some back pews and uh, was doing prayer services. I think Daddy King was conducting that service mm. and, and greeted us uh, as we were leaving. We actually tried to, to go to the funeral home and they wouldn't let us in. Yeah. You know, we were pretty adventurous uh, right. since we're out there. Going to Ebenezer was sort of a, a high point in terms of being in the middle of, of things for us. So did, so then did you, uh, I mean, you mentioned you had some incidences and concerns driving to Atlanta. Mm -hmm. uh, there were riots in various places right. around the country right. and yeah. at some point, when did you head back to well, actually, we, we left Atlanta and then went to Charlotte, North Carolina. Took a little side trip because I had a girlfriend in Charlotte. Oh, really? We didn't call ahead. We just kind of showed up on her doorstep. Her, she wasn't there at the time. She was at a church meeting. And her mother was real surprised to see this white boy standing on the <laughs> porch because Charlotte was, it was, it was very tense in Charlotte. And there were things going on in Charlotte. So uh, Keith got a little, little sleep and while I visited with my girlfriend at, at the time. Take it it's not the girlfriend you married. It's not the girlfriend that I married, <laughs> that's right. 
But when we were leaving Charlotte, I had to cover Keith uh, with a blanket to get him out of the, the black neighborhood because there were there was fighting and rioting going on right there. So we we did actually come close to to a, a lot of that that activity. And on the way back, passing by Memphis, we couldn't get off the highway in Memphis. It, it was blocked off, and so we had to keep keep going around that. Harold was describing getting out of Charlotte. I, I've told him that he probably wanted to throw a blanket over me earlier to keep me <laughs> quiet or something, but I was yeah. I was literally on the floorboard on the passenger side with a blanket over because we were afraid we'd get a brick through the window of seeing a white face. Yeah. Me. But before I did my submarine act, I there were fire trucks and so forth and sirens everywhere. There was a visible smoke and flames in the distance. This was in Charlotte. In Charlotte. Not, not in Atlanta. And so now Atlanta, as Harold said, Atlanta was quiet. It was almost unique among major cities. It was as if there Dr. King's message of nonviolence actually meant something. But we heard these stories and in fact one of the students that was with us when we went to Ebenezer Baptist Church his brother was trapped in an office building in downtown Washington, D.C. because of the proximity to uh, the rioting that was going on there. And so we were hearing these reports that sounded like cities and even the nation was sort of coming apart at the seams with all of this violence. But Atlanta was uh, the exception. So when you left Charlotte, did you head back to Stillwater? We made a stop in uh, Nashville. And visited with the uh, former pastor of University Heights, Bill Sherman, Dr. Sherman, and his family, and went to uh, a service with them. They were just dear, wonderful people that we wanted to stay connected to, and we took the opportunity to see him because he had just recently left and um, moved to pastor a church in, in uh, Nashville. The church he was pastoring was Woodmont Baptist, which was a large upper middle class church and an, the Southern Baptist Convention is based in Nashville, Tennessee and a, large, a lot of employees and officers of the Southern Baptist Convention mm -hmm. attended that church. Nashville was under a curfew, a six o'clock curfew, so they, one of the first things they did at the service in that morning was announced there would be no evening services because of the uh, curfew and there was, people were understandably on edge. And so here, Harold and I walk in and sit with the pastor's family. Harold's the only black face in the congregation. One of the th most memorable parts of that was that the Sherman son, who was about three at the time, had known Harold from being in Stillwater. Mm -hmm. And he curled up on Harold's lap and went to sleep. His father, Dr. Sherman, was interrupted his sermon when he looked down and saw that. When he directed his attention to Harold, the congregation's attention was directed in that way. And there was this audible sigh. Hmm. I mean, it was just this collective reaction like there was some that's, sense of relief. That's the way it ought to be. Yeah. That must have been remarkable. It, it was. Um, you know, it, it sounds like that was really comfortable, but I'll tell you that when you have to travel in and you, you have to count to see how many other people are like you. Yeah. You don't really feel safe and secure. Right. And you, you're sort of on guard a lot. And I'm sure, sure that happens in schools and other places where 
people are, are not in the majority. And uh, there's a certain amount of tension and, that comes with, with just existing in those environments. So did you then proceed on on back, or were there further incidences? No. Uh, the, the, the incidents that uh, happened in Arkansas were on the, on the way out. We drove through extreme uh, thunderstorms and didn't find out till the, the next day that we had driven through a swarm of tornadoes. <laughs> so much lightning that you didn't even need headlights <laughs> because there was so much activity. Unfortunately, we didn't, we didn't know that. But I'll tell you, the other thing is that during the days before cell phones, we, we couldn't be in communication with people very easily. And our parents didn't know we had taken this trip. When we first got to Atlanta, I think one of the first things I did was went and got some postcards and made some notes and, and sent them postcards, which they didn't get until after the assassination and couldn't call me because sure. I, I wasn't in the dorm. I called them when I got back, and they were just going crazy. Where are you? Are you okay? Uh, what, what were you thinking? <laughs> so yeah. it, it was it was uh, very interesting coming back. And but when we we got back, we learned that there was a fraternity that was having a picnic, uh, a celebration at Lake Carl Blackwell, celebrating the, the death of King. Oh, my so it was kind of hard to come back to a place where there were people who were, you know, supporting what was going on with James O'Ray. We had, in the, one of the things you, were, you asked early about our friendship, uh, that during this trip, Harold and I, after the encounter with the Alabama State Troopers, spending the next 20 minutes looking out the back window to make sure we weren't being followed, that began the uh, prolonged conversation that lasted basically the rest of the trip about various matters related to race, where we explored the difference between what we what I had never really thought about before. I mean, one of the things about being a, I guess, a teenager in America at that time, and if you live in an all-white town, race is you know sort of some issue that affects people somewhere else. Harold and I both had educated parents. We were probably barely, barely middle-class kids in Oklahoma. Both of us had been student leaders in our high schools, and so there were many, and we'd both been raised Baptist. There were many similarities, but, but there were also, we began to explore all the differences in the, in the ways that we grew up, the way that what we expected of the way we would be treated by other people, some of the not only just not the more overt, outrageously racist, and obviously racist acts, but uh, many of the more subtle differences that, at least for me as a naive white kid, I had never really thought about. Your going to that white church uh, remind me, reminds me of, we, I used to work in television in Oklahoma City and uh, we had a uh, African-American reporter said something very profound, I thought. It was right uh, after the o, at the O.J. verdict, when O.J. Simpson's verdict came out. And uh, he said, this is the most segregated moment in this country except for Sunday morning, mm -hmm. yes. which I thought was a pretty interesting observation. Yeah. Yeah. And I, our, our law firm was, uh, I can remember a lot of the administrative people were of color and, uh, and uh, the, the white lawyers were, I can't believe that, and we didn't have any black lawyers. Mm -hmm. 
but they were actually applauding it in the, mm -hmm. in the, in the admin room. Mm -hmm. And I realized that, that if you think yeah. that we don't still have work to do. <laughs> the fact that we are such a segregated society is not an accident. It is by government policy that segregation was created in housing. Uh, when the government, uh, during the time after World War II and people were building uh, the suburbs, there, there were government policies that would not allow blacks to uh, buy homes in, in certain areas. And uh, we're, we're giving uh, subsidies to, to whites and then taking things away from blacks. So the, the, these were government policies that uh, created this all over, the, all over the country. And we haven't recovered from that very much because those, those differences and the, and the gaps uh, seem to get wider. But there was a, there's a middle class that seemed to have benefited from the civil rights movement, but, but then there's an underclass that was created. So we have to look at race and class uh, and, yeah. and figure out how to address those things. Special thanks to Harold and Keith for sitting down with President Hargis to tell their story. That's all from this week's Inside OSU podcast. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. I'm Robin Hearn. Thanks for listening.